Good morning, everyone. It is uh, so good to be back. I, I love traveling and see our family, but uh, coming home is, is the only thing better than that. <clears throat> we got to worship um, in, a, in a different church, and it was wonderful, and I appreciated that. But boy, it makes you long to be home with your own church family, and I'm really thankful to be back and to have us look at Psalm 13 today. So while you're finding Psalm 13, why don't I open our Lord's Day in prayer today. Our Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather around the warm fire of your word, to be transfixed by truth, to look into the eyes of our Savior through the very word of God himself, to see the the truths and the glories that shape our lives to be reminded of our salvation, to be reminded of the cross, to be reminded of the grace of God. Such good and sweet and wondrous things that we are privileged to partake in this Lord's Day. Lord, I pray for each person here, each person listening, that our hearts would be thrilled by Psalm 13, that we would find comfort, that we would find hope, that we would find strength, that we would find power in the Lord to live a life that is worthy of the gospel and pleasing to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Psalm 13. While you're thinking about Psalm 13, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created everything at the beginning, in this perfect, absolutely pristine environment in this world, he fashioned a concept. I don't really know what else to call it. It's, it's not a thing. It's a concept. It's a reality. And it marks our whole existence. It punctuates our lives. It can be a source of godly pride when we're loyal to a lot of this concept. It's the measure by which we mark out great occasions, great accomplishments. It's what orients us to the world around us. It's what orients our lives. It was created perfectly. It was created as a tremendous blessing, particularly when you have lots and lots of it. In fact, God designed, physically designed the entire universe to craft this concept, this reality. When God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, it wasn't just to give heat and light. It was to create this reality, to create this concept. Genesis 1.14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And of course, this concept, this reality that was designed to bless mankind, that was created perfectly, is time. It's made for us. But time has now become, just like everything else in the sinful world, it's become tainted. It's become difficult. It has, in many ways, become our enemy. We live in a sinful world. We live in sin-ridden bodies. And so time now becomes something that is not necessarily a good thing for us. Instead of taking decades or centuries to raise our children, as happened in the pre-flood world, our children are no sooner out of diapers than they're itching to leave home. And it just happens that fast. All of you who are parents of grown kids, you, you go, I just changed your diaper 20 minutes ago. And now you you're, have a career and all of this. Instead of enjoying a three-month leisurely journey somewhere, we have to drive, we have to fly. Why? Because we don't have time. We don't have time. 
Instead of celebrating 500-year anniversaries, we're amazed when the couple makes it to 50 years. And in the, in, in the lifespan of pre-flood people, 50 years is nothing. That's a shame to only make it to 50 years. But I think most painfully, when it comes to time, when your life is characterized by a period of pain, a period of suffering, or maybe an extended time of suffering, time becomes agonizing. Because it feels like God has forgotten you. And the reason it's hurtful is because time is running out. Your birthdays are ticking by. A crisis that took six months turns into six years, turns into two decades. The ebbing away of time, I think, is probably one of the most helpless and hopeless feelings we can have as human beings because there's nothing you can do about it. Either it's flying by when we want more of it or it seems to stand still when we're waiting for the Lord to act, for the Lord to show, show himself present and accounted for. And so right now, time is primarily our enemy because it causes great hopelessness. There's an old saying that says, time heals all wounds. I don't know who came up with that, but that's a lie. Time does not heal all wounds. If time healed all wounds, hell would not be necessary. Hell is forever because time does not heal all wounds. Time is not our friend in most cases. Psalm 13 is so helpful to us because it both acknowledges the pain of time and it gives spiritual comfort to deal with the pain of time. I think this is going to be a a drink of cool water for us spiritually. It's going to be a relief. And hopefully by the time we're done, you will not be so worried about the passing of time. I've entitled this study, Hope in the Midst of Hopelessness. And this is really focused on time. Hope in the Midst of Hopelessness. Let's look at the psalm together. We'll just read through it. Psalm 13, for the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is written by King David, and there isn't enough information in the psalm to really ascertain exactly what the situation is. Um, Suffice to say that his life was pockmarked by periods of great suffering. So really, we we could pick any of them. And many of those times were times when his enemies were threatening to overwhelm him. I wanted to refer to one of my favorite scholars in the Psalms, Dr. George Zimmick. Um, he pictures David in this Psalm as starting underwater, spiritually speaking. Just like uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever been underwater and you look up and the surface is farther than you would like it for, to be, um, that's the feeling that Dr. Zimmick gives us. David is asking questions about time. How long must he suffer? How long must it seem that God has completely disappeared? How long must David live with emotional turmoil, with anguish, with depression, with anxiety? How long must David's enemies appear to be triumphing? But then Dr. Zimmick, in verses 3 and 4, he pictures David as coming up to what he calls sea level, that he's at the surface of the water at least. 
And in verses 3 and 4, look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. David begins to achieve what we might call spiritual traction. That he, He's getting a grip. He's beginning to pray. And he's appealing to the apparent defeat that would happen if David were to perish at the hands of his enemies. He says, give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, Uh, Lest my enemy says, I have overcome him. In other words, David says, look, if I die in this crisis, it's going to look to the world like your enemies, my enemies have won. And so he begins to gain a little bit of traction. And then finally, George Zimmick pictures David as climbing to a mountaintop. He starts below water, underwater, going to sea level and climbing to a mountaintop in verses 5 and 6. And now he achieves true spiritual victory. And that's really the whole point of our suffering, isn't it? Our suffering is not here to help us learn how to get rid of suffering. Our suffering is here to help us learn how to achieve victory. And it's been said by uh, some scholars that spiritual victory happens in the eight inches between your ears. In your mind is where that happens. And so Zimmick says, David has now climbed to the mountaintop. He's achieved spiritual victory in the face of his enemies. The enemies are not people. The enemies are time and hopelessness. Those are the real enemies. Because that's really the the victorious section, I want to spend the bulk of our time on those final two verses. The the first four verses are are obvious. It's David uh, showing that he just is completely hopeless. Then in verse 3, he begins to pray. But verses 5 and 6 give us what I would say is the best defense, which is a good offense. So you need to have an active response of faith. And I'd like to divide this into four ways to defeat the enemy of time. Four ways to defeat the enemy of time, or maybe call this to find hope in the midst of hopelessness. The first way to defeat the enemy of time, we'll call rehearse the completed grace of God. And that phrase is very specific, rehearse the completed grace of God. David, in verses 5 and 6, he makes some determinations he starts off in verse 5, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. There's a, there's a conjunction there that tells us something new is happening. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. The English Standard Version calls this steadfast love. You're familiar with this. This is the chesed love of God. It is covenant love. It's bound up in covenant. You can't talk about chesed love without covenant. The two go together. It's not a feeling of love. It's not an emotion. It's not a sentiment. It's a promise. It's love that does things. This is an incredibly important Old Testament concept because it really defines the grace of God. The grace of God is God making a covenant with people who deserve no covenant. God making promises to people who deserve no promises. That's has said love. But I want to point out that the main verb in this clause, I have trusted. In Hebrew, this is what's called a perfect verb. Generally speaking, it means an action was performed in the past and it's, it's completed. It never needs to be done again. This is an important concept because David is asserting that the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the covenant faithful love, the grace of God was accomplished for David in the past. It never needs to be accomplished again. It's finished. It's done. And so David is reassuring himself. I have trusted in your loving kindness. He's reassuring himself that God's covenant love, even though he feels emotionally forgotten at the moment, God's covenant love has already been set in motion. 
Or as one preacher said, the grace is in place and it's there. What does it mean to rehearse the completed grace of God? I, I, I think that, and I won't test you, but I think that if you went up to the average Christian and said, define grace, I don't think you're going to get more than three sentences out of most Christians because it's not something we just think about all the time. But I think it needs to be something we think about all the time. To rehearse the completed grace of God, it means to ponder it. It means to chew on it. It means to, to meditate on it. And think about this. Grace is our standing. It's our position. Romans 5.2 Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we what? Stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Grace has outrun the speed of our sin. Grace is very, very fast. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, grace is faster than any sin you can commit. Grace is part of our daily lives. Do you ever think about that? Romans 16.23 Paul said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the implication is today. Right now. Grace is the endless supply of God for salvation. Endless supply. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. And this is an important concept. This is not plucked out of the riches of His grace. It doesn't mean if God had a million dollars, you got a hundred dollars. It means if God had a million dollars, you got a million dollars. You got everything. You got the riches of his grace. Grace is the gift of God to undeserving rebels. Grace and gift go goes very closely together. Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace is what makes us family. Did you know that? It's what makes us as believers family together. Philippians 1.7, Paul says, It's only right for me to think this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers with me in this grace. It's what makes us family. Grace is the means by which God has made you right in his own eyes. That's what grace does. Titus 3, 7. Having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is grace that justifies you. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Can you? That God looks at you as you are and then chooses by grace to look at you as Christ is. That's grace. Grace is what put Jesus on the cross. Did you know that? Hebrews 2.9 But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone. The death of Christ is the grace of God. Grace is what provides you daily spiritual strength. Hebrews 13.9 says, It is good to be strengthened by grace. Grace is that which is to flow through us to one another. And 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, the, the varied, the multifaceted grace of God. That the grace of God has infinite flavors, if I could put it that way. And it flows through us from God to each other. And grace is something that's to increase and expand in our own understanding, in our own meditation. 
In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me give you a second way to defeat the enemy of time. After rehearsing the completion of grace, rejoice in deliverance. You rejoice in deliverance. In the second half of verse 5, David asserts, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now let's talk about salvation for a moment, because as a reminder, in the Old Testament, the connotation of salvation is very often much more the flavor of deliverance, of rescue, of help, the salvation of Israel from Egypt, the salvation of Israel from her surrounding enemies. In the New Testament, the connotation becomes almost exclusively spiritual salvation. Uh, For example, Habakkuk 2.4, Old Testament, says that the righteous will live by his faith. Paul quotes this twice in the New Testament to speak of salvation by faith alone in Christ. But in Habakkuk's context, the Babylonian army was coming as the judgment of God. God is saying that the righteous, the true believer in Yahweh with the true internal reality of faith will live, meaning survive by his faith. What does that tell us, by the way? It tells us that when Babylon invaded, true believers survived. That those who were killed, we would assume, were the unbelievers. So David, in the face of enemies that often surround him, he rejoices in the time that God rescues him. This physical rescue. And in fact, the main verb here, my heart shall rejoice, unlike the perfect verb earlier in verse 5, this is an imperfect verb. It means something that's not completed, something that you repeat over and over again. David has made a choice to repeatedly rejoice in God's work of salvation, of rescue. This is... And this is a simple way to put it. This is David cultivating an internal heart of gratitude. That's what he's doing. Of focusing on the Lord's blessings and his kindness. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so key that David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation? Because just like nine lines earlier, how long will you forget me? And he answers his own question. The answer to the question is, I have proof that God has not forgotten me because I rejoice in my salvation over and over and over again. God is not hiding his face from David. But we can take the example of Habakkuk 2.4, which speaks of physical salvation, applied by Paul as spiritual salvation, to now extend the concept of physical salvation to spiritual salvation. I want to remind you of something, and you're familiar with this story. When the prophet Samuel shows up at the ranch of Jesse the Bethlehemite, to choose the next king of Israel. He gathers seven sons. Will it be him? Will it be him? Him, 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 him? Nope. Where's the other one? David was so insignificant. If you're a youngest child, you're saying, I know, I get this, I understand this. He was so insignificant that his dad didn't even count him. He didn't even say, I've got another one out here until he was pressed by Samuel. But I want to remind you, God had already chosen David. David who's minding his own business in the fields with his flocks. He's not aspiring to be king. He's not aspiring to be anything great. But I want to remind you that God not only chose David to be king, God chose David to be forgiven. He chose him. People can argue the doctrine of election uh, one way or the other from the New Testament, I suppose. The Old Testament is actually a much stronger argument. 
Now, the New Testament just says God elects the saved. The Old Testament has examples of it over and over again. David was chosen by God to be saved from his sins. And I think that's part of what he's uh, celebrating in Psalm 32. David writes, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is David's weapon against time and against hopelessness. It's simply gratitude for salvation. That is a tremendous gift. It's a tremendous weapon. I've talked to believers, I've been a pastor long enough to talk to believers that will admit I have trouble having an attitude of thankfulness. I have trouble having a heart of gratitude. And a challenge I've given many, and and so far I'm undefeated in how effective this challenge is, is to have someone go and get pages and pages of notebook paper. And I think it's effective in this case to not use a laptop, but to use a good old pen and paper and to list every single sin you can remember from the time you were a little child all the way up until this moment of sinning by not trusting the Lord in gratitude. Everyone possible. I've seen people bring 30 and 40 pages. And then the simple exercise is, This is what God has forgotten on your behalf. In God's eyes, those pages are all blank. They're all filled with only Christ. What a gift to remember and rejoice in salvation. You know what that does when it defeats time? You know how it defeats time? It makes time not matter. It just doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't make any difference You find hope in the midst of hopelessness. There's a third way to defeat the enemy of time. We'll call this one, raise your voice in worship. Raise your voice in worship. I'm always excited when the Bible addresses singing, and it does it many, many hundreds of times. But the first half of verse 6, I will sing to Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh. There's a comparison here. If the heart rejoicing in the cultivation of an internal attitude of thankfulness, if that's internalized, if that's something that's personal between you and God, then singing, the raising of your voice in worship, that's the external act of worship, the action of the worshiper. And by the way, this main verb, I will sing, it's also an imperfect verb. It's a repeated action. It's never completed. Now there's a strategy for you to fight back against the enemies of time and hopelessness. Just sing. Just sing. Or, or if I want to put it in very simple terms, you get your hymnal and you start in hymn number one and you don't stop singing until you feel better, until time doesn't matter, until hopelessness has turned to hope. And you might be at oh, hymn number 350. I've got to have more faith. It's music of our faith that sustains our souls. This is God's invention. It cheers our hearts. And by the way, there's an added bonus to our singing. And listen, this is very important. Singing connects you to eternity. It is, a, it is a connection to eternity at a profound level. It reaches outside the restrictive boundaries of time. How does singing defeat the enemy of time? Well, it connects you to eternity. First of all, it connects you to the past. It connects you to the saints of the past who have gone on to their reward. This whole idea that the church should be singing only contemporary songs, that's, that's from Satan. 
Why do we know that's from Satan? Because in the book of Revelation, I could show you an example of the saints in heaven singing the brand new song and singing a song that, that as of today is 4,000 years old. That you do both. It connects you. Or put it this way, when you sing a hymn that has been sung by saints of Christ for hundreds of years, you're following in their footsteps as you think about the fact that they were singing this 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago and they might even be, have sung the same tune that you're singing. It connects you to them. It connects you to eternity. It takes you outside of time. And on the other side of that, our singing connects you to the future. Our singing will extend into eternity. Revelation 5 pictures the church in heaven singing to the Lord a new song. Here's how this song goes. I don't know the tune, but I know the words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Singing connects you to eternity. It takes you outside of time. You know, the two best friends you have on this earth when time and hopelessness are shattering over you, the two best friends you have are your Bible and your hymnal. If you're, if you're uh, running out of a burning house, get your family first, then get your Bible and hymnal, because that's all you need. Later on this morning, when we're singing together, I want you to just note in your heart that you're joining with a 2,000-year-old choir, most of whom are already home in heaven. And you're looking ahead to an eternal bliss of belting out tunes of the truths of God's wonder and His majesty. And so raise your voices. Here's a fourth way to defeat the enemy of time, to find hope in the midst of hopelessness. Run to the glorious future. Run to the glorious future. The final line of Psalm 13 says, because He has dealt bountifully with me. Now there's sort of a a sandwich effect here. The beginning of verse 5 is a perfect verb. The next two main verbs are imperfect verbs, which are repeated. My heart shall rejoice, I will sing. And now the, the other end of the sandwich, he has dealt bountifully with me. This is another perfect verb. It's a complete, completed action. Now, this is so important for us because this means that God has already distributed everything that David needs. God is withholding nothing from David. There's there's nothing on the bench. There's no more tricks to pull out. That means that perfect justice, perfect righteous retribution against David's enemies, perfect resolution to every single crisis, perfect peace in the land of Israel, it's all been allocated, it's all been dispensed, it's all been given with one minor detail that we have to contend with. From David's vantage point, it's future hasn't happened yet but in god's economy all justice all righteousness all recompense all resolution has already been accomplished we were a little bit frustrated at times by the english language it has a hard time dealing with perfect verbs in hebrew so generally they're translated in the past tense because he has past tense dealt bountifully with me But it's a past tense in this particular case with a future ramification. That it's something that's finished. In this case, David is asserting that God has already done everything that must be done. That's a tremendous feeling. So instead of time seeming to stand still, 
in your heart, you run to a glorious future where justice will reign. All will be made right because in the economy of God, it's already done. It's already completed. What does that mean? It means taking time to meditate on these truths, to go in your mind's eye to the moment of your death. Don't dread that. I think about the moment of my death every day. That's a, that's a glorious thought. To be absent from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. It means to fast forward to your resurrection when your body is perfected and renewed. It means to race to a time when God reigns on the earth. It means to anticipate the great white throne judgment when all the wicked of all the ages will receive their justice from God. It's already a done deal. Look to the very end, to the new earth, when creation is as it was meant to be. There is a reason that 33% of our Bible is prophecy, to make us look ahead. You know, very often I have the opportunity to speak to some of you, and, and I hear this word a lot, I hear hopelessness. And, and to be fair, some will say, I, I know I shouldn't be hopeless, it's just how I'm feeling right now. Well, what I've just given you, rehearse, in the, rehearse the completed grace of God, rejoice in deliverance, raise your voice in worship, run to the glorious future. As often as not, when I, I speak to a believer and I give them strategies straight from Scripture like this, I, I sometimes get the sense, oh, but you don't understand how bad I feel. Don't worry about how bad you feel. Do these things. Simply do them by faith and you will discover that time now becomes not your enemy, and hopelessness turns into hope. I actually want to address that because I've been speaking of time as our enemy. Is it really your enemy? It's not. Time is not your enemy. And you might say, well, have you looked in the mirror or have you looked at me? Time seems to be my enemy. It's not. Let me give you a larger perspective about time with, from kind of three angles or three considerations. First of all, Time can be leveraged for your spiritual benefit. Did you know that? Time can be leveraged for your spiritual benefit. God promised Abraham a son in his old age and he made Abraham wait 25 years for that promise to come true. And you remember, Abraham was already old when the promise was made. How did Abraham respond to the passage of time, of not hearing from God during that time of waiting? Romans 4 tells us, beginning in verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I can't ever read that without laughing, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, the more time passed, the more Abraham's faith was strengthened that I'm one day closer to this promise being fulfilled. So you can leverage time on your, in your uh, favor. There's a second consideration. Time is not the enemy. Your perception that everything must be completed in this life, that's your enemy. Your perception that everything must be completed, everything must be satisfied in, in your life, that's the enemy. If you could picture all of the, the demarcations or the, the periods of your life as lines you cross, 
Your first birthday was a line that you crossed. Your, your entrance into kindergarten was a line that you crossed. Your graduation from high school, a line that you crossed. Your marriage, a line that you crossed. Birth of your first child, line, 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 line. There's just one little line that if you could erase it, time stops being your enemy. That's the line of your death. Erase that line. God's work in your life, you ready for this? It doesn't stop at your death. It doesn't stop. The prayers you've prayed, the requests you've made continue on. The Bible pictures your prayers as bottled up in heaven. Did you know that? Our assumption is is that somehow uh, the end of our life is the end of God working in our life. That's not the case. Time is not the enemy when you're glorified. Time's not the enemy when you're resurrected. Erase that little line. And then it's simply a matter of, will all of my prayers be answered in this life or in the life to come? That's it. That's the only, that's the only question. And now it just becomes a, almost a, a neutral point of wonder. I, I don't know. I'm kind of curious. And here's a third consideration to kind of expand our, our view here. The idea that time ceases to exist in eternity is a myth. I hate to break that to you, and I, I think there's a hymn in our hymnal that, that says this, but uh, time ceasing to exist in eternity, that's a myth. I understand the myth. It's probably based on the fact that our interaction with time is so tainted by sin, is so painful, is so desperate because we're, our time is short, right? We, we don't have very much. But the reality is, is that time is a gift from God. When was time given? It was given in Genesis 1 prior to sin entering into the world. It was a gift to the world prior to sin. And time will extend as a blessing in the future. How about the blessing of 1,000 years with Christ reigning on the earth? The Bible does not say a really long time. It says 1,000 years. Or the Bible doesn't say, time doesn't matter anymore. You don't have to worry about it. No, it says 1,000 years, six times over in Revelation 20. Or how about this? How about the blessing in the final state on new earth, the tree of life issuing its fruit every month 12 times over? What is that? That's a 12-month year. And by the way, when Revelation 22 says that New Jerusalem will not need the light of the sun or the moon, it does not say it won't have a sun or a moon. It just says it won't need the light. When, when you're in the midst of a stadium filled with light at nighttime, the sun could come up, but you didn't need the sun. The sun and the moon still exist. There's, there's time markers That's how we'll know. So time is not an enemy. It is something that will be a blessing. Can can you imagine? We'd have to change the fourth verse, uh, or in some hymnals, the fifth verse of Amazing Grace. When we've been there uh, 10,000 years, what do we say? I think it'll be pretty cool to uh, mark, we've been here 10,000 years. Bright shining is the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Uh, this is an amazing psalm. And look at the contrast. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? And at the end, he has dealt bountifully with me. David defeats the enemy of hopelessness and he reharnesses the seeming enemy of time in his favor by waiting on the Lord and looking to the future. Let me leave you with this. Uh, this is an astounding statement made by the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 3, 
Peter preaches a sermon. And he explains that Christ has, ex- has ascended into heaven until a certain time, a certain uh, epoch that he calls, listen, the period of restoration of all things. This is a tremendous promise. Every loose end in your life, every pain, every difficulty, every disappointment, every question, every, every mystery, everything is restored. Everything is made new. All you have to do is wait. That's it. That's all you have to do is wait. And how many days at a time does God expect you to wait? Just one. All you have to do is make it to the end of today. And tomorrow's a new day. And tomorrow's a new day. God has never said you need to deal with five days at once. He's never even said you have to deal with four, three, two, just one. And what does Jesus say about that one day? Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll bless you today. So how do you wait? I remember asking my dad that question. I, I don't know. I was really I was a I was a very weird kid and I, I pondered deep spiritual questions and, and they worried me because I didn't have any answers and and I asked my dad, How do you wait on the Lord? How do you wait? And his answer was always the same, one day at a time. That's it. One day at a time. So use Psalm 13 because in the span of six verses, David goes from hopelessness to total victory. I think that's a, that's a pretty good study. It's pretty helpful for us. So let's pray together and thank the Lord for this psalm. Our Father, you have completely, accurately understood the crisis that we have. From the moment we're born, the clock is ticking We have about 18 years before our our bodies have peaked and begin a slow process toward death. We have a finite number of times to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, a finite number of times to take the opportunity to believe. Our bodies fail us, our minds fail us. The various crises that we encounter the things that are are so overwhelmingly painful that we can't believe we're, we're going through them. Time seems to be our enemy. Marriages that fail and children that fail and careers that fail and, and relationships that fail and time flies by as we wait and hope for you to fix those things. And sometimes it seems like you're not going to. But Father, we take comfort from our brother in the Lord, David, who began in despair, asking the question, will you forget me forever? And ends by saying, I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. I pray for each of these precious saints here, Lord, that they would grasp in their own hearts that all that will be restored has already been done in the economy of God. We simply have to wait for the consummation of that decree. I pray that you would increase our faith. Help us to be those that walk faithfully through times that seem hopeless, but that we might be those that demonstrate hope. And we pray these things all that Christ might receive the glory. Amen.